Thanks, Nick. On Easter morning, we celebrate. We celebrate the good news that Jesus is alive and raised from the dead. And it's, it's often my favorite day of the year. And more than that, I believe that what happened is the greatest event in human history. We, we wish everyone could understand it, believe it, he, hear about it, and know that it happened. The question I want us to, kind of in the background of this message, we're going to get into some real details here, but, but it's how might you, you convince someone who's not sure it's true, someone who's questioning whether Jesus really did raise from the dead, someone who thinks maybe it's just a nice story that we tell to feel better, how might you actually convince them that Jesus was raised from the grave? So let that question be in the background of your mind as we think about this. And what I want to do is think about Mark. Mark was the first one to put the story of Jesus into writing. We have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was written the earliest, between probably 50 to 60 AD, somewhere in there, while people were still alive who had seen it all. And he starts at the very beginning... And maybe you remember this back in September when we started Mark 1.1. What does it say? The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I I talked about that, the acronym ICTHUS, which is a a version of that. So he starts off saying, I'm going to tell you the good news about the Son of God. And then he goes on to talk about everything that Jesus did. And you know, the the miracles and how people began to be convinced, um, the amazing things, how he responded to people. And you, but you also started to see the opposition of the, especially the religious leaders, but also Herod start to grow. And you saw that and their, their determination to, to get rid of him. And then the story culminates at Mark 15, 39, And it says, and he breathed his last. And the Roman centurion in charge of his execution said, surely this man was the son of God. So the whole way you're thinking, you know, he'll find, Jesus will find some way to overcome the opposition. And then he's dead. I mean, imagine you... You, someone, you're in the 50 AD or whatever, and someone gave you the Gospel of Mark and you started reading it, not knowing how it all plays out. Would that not be kind of a shocking ending? Oh, wait, he's the son of God, and you get more and more convinced, and then, then he's dead? And it reminded me of something. And I'm curious how many will, will relate to this illustration. Some of you will, some of you won't. But um, it reminded me of when I watched the Marvel Avengers Infinity War and the ending of that. So just out of curiosity, if you watched Infinity War in the theaters, raise your hand. Okay, so I realize I lost half of you right there. So so let me explain. Uh, Marvel, for those who don't follow superhero movies, and it's okay if you don't, Marvel did something amazing. They started putting out superhero movie after superhero movie. Maybe you noticed. And there's, you know, Iron Man, Captain America, just kept going on and on. 
But in the background of those stories, like each had its own plot, but in the background, they started to build a bigger story behind it. That of this really, really evil bad guy named Thanos, who had a singular goal to gain seven infinity stones. And with them, he could, he could deal with the problem of overpopulation in the universe. And so his plan was get the infinity stones, and then he could snap his fingers and half of every sentient being, half of all people and on every world, would die. And so they finally brought this background story to its own movie in Infinity War. And they threw every superhero they had, like battle after battle, trying to stop Thanos. And, you know, as you watch the movie, you kept thinking, well, once so-and-so fights him, he'll win. No, no, Thanos just kept dealing with every superhero out there, no matter how powerful. And you kept waiting for them to find some way to defeat him. And then at the end, he kills one of the superheroes, rips the stone out of his head, and that completes his seven, and then he does it. Snaps his fingers, and they show half of all people on earth and every other world die, disappear. They just evaporate. And that's how the movie ends. And I remember being shocked, like thinking, you can't end a movie like that. That's not, that's not how it works. And Marvel had this thing. They would do the credits, then put a little clip afterwards. We stayed to the whole credits thinking they'd have some last little thing. But, but nope, that's how it ended. Now, here's something you may not know. Thanos is the Greek word for death. They literally showed death winning in the end and no power in the universe, being able to stop it. Interesting. Is that not what Mark did? The Son of God came into the world, and and now does death really win in the end? And there's only a little bit left after 1539. What happens? They they take him down from the tomb. They put him or take him down from the cross. They put him in a tomb. And then you have the, the next eight verses. But the question is, is, does death really win in the end? So, so Mark 16 takes up the story. And what happens? How does he finish it? Well, there's three women who go to the tomb. Interesting how God set it up that the women were the ones who investigated. It was, it was the, the men folk had scattered the male disciples, out of fear, it's only the women who were willing to go to the cross, be there at the cross, and then find the tomb. And they're going because they want to finish the burial preparations. Jesus had been killed right before the Sabbath, and they did not have time to do the proper preparations. And in the Jewish Sabbath, they would not do any work. So, so they, he was killed right before Friday at sundown. All of the Sabbath on Saturday, everyone rested and then it's only Sunday morning when the Sabbath was over that they go and with the intention of finishing the burial preparations. No thought that he might have risen. And when they get there, they're worried about the stone, but when they get there, four things they see. One is the stone has already been rolled away. Well, that helps because they, they didn't know what they were going to do about that. Second, 
they look and the tomb is empty. Well, not quite empty, but it's empty of a dead body. Jesus is not in it. And then third, instead of Jesus, there's this young man kind of glowing, like basically an angelic messenger is sitting where Jesus' body would have been. And, And he declares to them, Jesus is risen. He's alive. And then the fourth thing is he says he gives them instructions. Go tell the other disciples that Jesus is risen and that they will see him alive again, that Jesus will make appearances. So the angel foretells of appearances. And then it says that the women go back, but that they are so afraid they don't say anything. And that's the end of verse 8. So then you get to this little note in your Bible. And it's in most modern Bibles. It's not in the King James because um, that was the, it was from older. But it's this note. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. What is up with that? Um, we got to talk about this and how to understand this. And, and realize it's a little bit of a complicated subject. We're going to be getting into some weeds here. Um, for most pastors, most normal, ordinary pastors, they would just go to Matthew and John. It's a lot easier, you know. But you have no normal pastor. So uh, we're going we're gonna to think about this for a little bit. And the reason why is I want you to know you can trust your Bible. And, and that there's this, this is not a reason to discount the message. So, so Christians, we believe that the scriptures are infallible and inerrant. But that applies to what was originally written. That God had inspired the Bible writers to write down what they wrote. And that the, it then has, it is reliable and authoritative for believers. But here's the thing. We actually don't have the original manuscripts of the books of the Bible. What, the original scrolls, scrolls they wrote on, we, we don't have any of those for any book of the Bible, um, any of the New Testament books. But what we do have is lots and lots and lots of copies. They, they translated into other languages, so we have copies that were translated at certain points. We have enough manuscript copies that we are confident that we can accurately know what, what the Bible writers actually wrote. There, but, but within all those copies, there are some variants, things, little differences. Most of those variants are really minor. Sometimes they're misspellings, or sometimes they accidentally copied a line twice. Sometimes it's a change in preposition, or a change from our to your. Little things like that that don't affect the translation. The most, the biggest variant we have is Mark 16, 9 to 20. It's the biggest, most serious variant we have. And the most earliest copies that we got end at verse 8. They don't have verses 9 to 20. So that leaves us three possibilities. It's nothing to be stressed over. Just think it out. Three possibilities. One is Mark originally wrote all of all the way to 20. Verses 8, he, he didn't end at 8, he wrote 9 to 20 as well. That was in the original gospel, but somehow it got lost from the, the manuscript. And so some copies had it, 
and some copies didn't. Um, we don't know why that might happen. Maybe they, they wrote on scrolls. There's limitations to space for, for whatever reasons. Another possibility, Mark had a different ending that was completely lost. Notice how at verse 8, it ends really abruptly, right? It ends with the women being too afraid to tell anyone. Isn't that kind of an odd way to end a story? So my, uh, the, the commentary I've been using quite a bit on this series is from Ben Witherington. He's a Bible scholar at Asbury Seminary, really smart guy. He argues that there was a different ending um, that was written on, and the end of a scroll, they wrote on scrolls, the last thing could easily have been worn so that, so that they later writer, copiers of it couldn't read the end of the scroll. And so for them, they're, they're missing like the last column of Mark. And so he suggests that that might be the best explanation. And then there's a third possibility. Mark really did end at verse 8 for some reason. Um, but later scribes, when they were reading it, noticed there, there's stuff missing. Later scribes who had then read Matthew, John, Luke, that they knew the other parts, knew that there was more to the story, and so they wrote explanatory, uh, an explanatory summary of those other accounts at the end of Mark and added it on, uh, just like you would have a study Bible, right? You have a study Bible with extra notes. Maybe they just add an explanatory summary of what happened after verse 8, and slowly it, it inadvertently got copied into Mark, and some then concluded it was part of the part of Mark. So those are the three possibilities. Let's sort of look at the verses themselves and see what we can figure out. So I'll kind of briefly hit, these were already read, but so starting in verses 9 to 11, talks about how um, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Now, if you notice how it ended on verse 8, with all the women being afraid, and then it says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. It's, notice the discontinuity. It's like verse 9 starts over again, right? It doesn't mention the other women, only one of them. Do you see a discontinuity between verses 8 and 9? Well, when you look at verses 9 to 11, and you compare it to John 20, verses 1 to 18, it is a summary of, of John. And for John, when he wrote his gospel afterwards, after Mark, he focused on Mary Magdalene for a simple reason. Uh, John first heard about the resurrection from Mary. Mary, after she had found the empty tomb, ran to Mark, or John, I'm sorry, and told John that the tomb was empty. And so for John, it sunk in his mind that Mary Magdalene was there. And so in his account, that focuses on Mary Magdalene, and that gets summarized in verses 9 to 11. Keep moving on. Verse 12 to 13 talks about how Jesus appeared to two disciples walking out in the country. And then they went back and told the rest who didn't believe them. Well, that is clearly a summary of the appearance of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is told in Luke chapter 24. So when Luke told the story of Jesus, 
He wasn't an eyewitness himself. He collected statements from different um, disciples. He, he collected eyewitness statements. And one of those was from a man named Cleopas who told about how Jesus appeared to them along the road as they walked to a town called Emmaus. So that's in Luke's gospel. Well, this sort of mentions that. Moving on, verse 14. And it says, And afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And so, again, it's another appearance in the upper room. And then Jesus goes on to, he rebukes them for not believing. And then he, he goes on to say, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. If you compare those two verses to Matthew's version of the resurrection, you'll see a lot of parallels, especially about those, some who doubted, Matthew talks about. And then, of course, the end of Matthew concludes with the Great Commission. Therefore, go into all the world, uh, proclaiming to all nations and baptizing them. And so, so this is a summary of, it sounds a lot like that Great Commission in Matthew. And then you get verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. I think that reflects two later Bible passages. One is Acts 2.38, where Peter, in Acts 2, Peter gives a message, and then he invites those who hear him to repent and be baptized and so be saved. It also reminds me of John 5, where Jesus says, If you believe my word you will have eternal life and you will not come into judgment because you've crossed over from death to life. Therefore, you will not be condemned. If you go on to, to 17 and 18, this, this, I'll read this whole one because this is, this is interesting. It says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. All of these things are talked about in Acts. Acts was a follow-up that Luke wrote to the gospel. Luke wrote his gospel, and then he wrote what happened after his gospel. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. And all of these things mentioned in these verses are talked about in, in the, the, the book of Acts. And it talks about how the, the disciples, the apostles, did wondrous signs and so many were believed that way. It talks about how in Acts 8, how Philip went to Samaria and cast out demons. Um, in Acts 2, at Pentecost, it talks about how all the believers spoke in new tongues. And then there's this, and they will pick up serpents. Where did they get that one from? What the very last chapter of Acts, in Acts 28, Paul the apostle is being taken to Rome to face trial. And as they, they go on the ship, the ship gets in a, a wreck, and they end up castaways on a small island. And so at one point, they're, him and his, his, the other Roman captors who have him, they're sitting around a fire, and a snake comes up and bites Paul, poisonous snake, right in the arm. And he just goes up to the fire and shakes it off. And, and they're all watching Paul to, to watch when he starts to die. But the poison doesn't hurt him, and he's fine. So... This, this little verse captures that idea, that idea of the serpents. And then the last two verses, 19 to 20, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. 
while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This again goes back to Acts. Acts 1 begins with Jesus ascending up into heaven. He's taken up into heaven. And then all the rest of Acts is how the gospel went everywhere. The gospel started to spread throughout the Roman, Greek and Roman worlds. So maybe you see where I'm going with this. But my contention is that verses 9 to 20 are all, it's a short summary of stuff that's in other parts of the Bible. As if some scribe had noticed that verse 8 was an awkward ending and wanted to give some explanatory details about what would happen next. So if we go back to the three possibilities. First of all, I know Christians and pastors who believe each of these three. And this is a secondary debatable issue. Um, I'm sort of arguing for the third one, but all of them are acceptable. Um, it's, it's, all of them are possible. Regardless, the, what we have is in 6 to 19 to 20 is still helpful. What we believe is that the original writings are, are a scripture, are authoritative and infallible. So if 9 to 20 was added later, it does not necessarily follow into that, but it doesn't matter because everything in verses 9 to 20 is in other parts of the Bible. So it, it's already there. It doesn't matter if 9 to 20 itself is, is considered scripture either way. No major doctrine of Christianity is at risk based on how we, what we believe about verses 9 to 20. Now, there is one minor doctrine that might be at risk um, because it's not taught elsewhere in Scripture. And I, I don't know if you know this, but there are churches that they're called snake handling churches. And I knew this because down in the uh, Appalachia where I had been for a while, you would hear about this sometimes. Never been to one, but I did have a pastor friend who who went and he was asked to preach at a church and then afterwards they brought out the poisonous snakes. And as a test of faith, you got to pass the snakes around to see if if they will bite you and whether you really believe if, uh, that. So um, sad to say that the, the picture on the screen is of a pastor in Kentucky who got bit by a snake and then died from it. So... So anyway, but they, they still do that. So I, th- I think that's the only doctrine from 9 to 20. You know, if you take Paul's story in Acts, God can protect us from snake bites, you know, if we're serving him. But I don't think he wants us to put him to the test by passing snakes around. But if anyone does think that, we can, I think we might find some out in there. Um, so, so again, these are secondary debatable issues. And it's okay to hold other views. But it leads us to a question. If Mark really did end in verse 8, what was he up to? Why would he end it like that? Why would he end it so abruptly with the women being afraid to tell anyone? You know, why would he tell the whole story of the Son of God and then leave the only ones who know too afraid to talk about it? And, and that's what I'm, I think I have an answer to. And so it goes back to that question. How, how do you convince someone that Jesus is raised from the dead? 
right? What, what gets someone to actually believe that? And I think Mark is being strategic. He gives enough. The tomb is empty, right? There's that promise that you will see him, that he's the declaration he's alive. He gives you enough that you've you got to find out more, right? It's kind of like a cliffhanger ending, but you don't have enough to know the full thing. And, and what would you do if you read that for the first time? Well, you would have to, uh, you'd have to go to one of the worship things. With the, you'd have to go find some Christians and say, did this really happen? T- tell me the rest of the story. He left them enough that they didn't have to go find, it would have been possible in 50 to 60 AD to find Christians who were eyewitnesses themselves and said, did he really rise from the dead? Mark is giving them a reason to want to find out more. And I think that's strategic because it takes it out of the realm of intellectual argument. See, if Mark just tried to argue people into believing that a man was raised from the dead, there too many would write that off as silliness. And if I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe, I can offer some good historical reasons to believe the resurrection really happened. And there are some great books that talk about that. If you, if you want a, a quick one, um, go Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. It's, it's, it, it can give you some good intellectual arguments for believing in the resurrection. But none of us can prove it, right? It's a historical event. No, you can't prove any historical event. No one can. But here's the thing. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not just an intellectual question. It is a life question. You only believe it when you begin to live it out. Or more accurately, he begins to live it out within you. Just to mentally assent to the resurrection doesn't, doesn't cut it. It's, it's necessary, but that's not sufficient. We have to know he's alive because he's alive within us. We have to know it's real because we've experienced his presence, because we prayed and seen him do something in our lives, because we hit, a, we hit the bottom and, and we didn't know where to turn and we called out to him and he showed up. That's when we know he's really alive. That's when we know it's real. And so what, what I think Mark was doing is says, come and see. Come and see and give it a shot. That's the only way you're really going to know. God's design is that those who are open to the possibility, those who, who have that little itch and they're just wondering, God says, come and see. You may not get all your questions answered immediately, but come and check it out. Take part in the community. Uh, show up at their meetings and see what they're talking about. Get to know the people. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you, you're not sure if Jesus rose from the dead, but you're intrigued. You want to know more. I'm convinced that, that the way you know more is to by keep coming. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that this is real, and it does make a difference in our lives. Um, come and see. But that puts, puts us in a scary position, those of us who are believers in Christ, right? We say, come and see, and, and they will decide whether they believe in Jesus by how we live and how we treat one another. Right? Do we dare invite people, hey, come and check it out, if they're going to make the decision of whether Jesus is raised based on our life and our interactions, uh, based on how we handle conflict, based on what we love and how we treat people? I think it's a, it's a risky thing for Christians to say. Do we dare invite people to come and see? But we have to. 
Because people need to know. The most important question that everyone has to answer is, does death really win in the end? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death wins. Death wins completely over everyone. We will die. We will cease to exist. No thought, no memory, no consciousness. Life will be over and we will be forgotten. You might say, well, my family will remember me. Well, what happens when they die? Then, then you know, do you, how many generations back do you remember? Do you know your great-great-great-grandfather? Eventually, we will all be forgotten. Everyone we love will die. It will come to an end, and it will be as if we never existed in the first place. And whether we lived well and loved people, or whether we were a jerk, it won't matter. Right? Because it will all be forgotten. Those who do great evil will have the same fate as those who really loved and cared for people. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death wins. But what if it's true? What if the whole story Mark told really happened? What if the Son of God entered this world? He showed what God is like by his life. He, he, he showed how God cared for people by how he responded to the hurting and the, the poor in his midst. He proved who he was by miracles and teachings. And he went to his death with eyes wide open as to what he would face. And he gave up his life to open the door to salvation to any willing to enter it. And then he was raised to life to declare definitively death has been defeated. I think, I think the culture, the people in this world, who, those who don't know, I think they're hungry for that answer. I think that's why that's in that Marvel movie, that you know, with all the, the superhero battles and everything, that's why they had death win, because people need that answer. And of course they had to make another movie afterwards where they undid... Uh, what Thanos did by time travel and all this silly stuff. But that's just, that's just movie magic, right? But it still shows people are hungry for that answer. They're desperate to know because we know life will have an abrupt ending. Right? You know, it could die, we could die from COVID. It could die from an accident. Or maybe we'll live and, and into our 90s and, and be in a nursing home. It will still feel abrupt, no matter how it ends, we have to know, friends, we know the one who defeated death. We know he's real. We know he's alive. We know the one who faced death head on. May everything we do celebrate that, testify to that. May our lives and not just our worship convey that truth. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, may everything that we do, may how we live and how we worship and how we treat one another, may how we love people, may how we do our work, may how we go to school, may that all be shaped and formed by the truth that Jesus, you are alive, you are risen, and you are Lord of the universe. May your power be at work in us because we know people are hungry to know the truth. Lord, we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.